Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. There's more good news coming on the horizon on the vaccine front. We might have more vaccines approved very soon. One from Johnson & Johnson, which was just shown to be effective against COVID-19 and is only a one-shot protocol. The other, though, is from a company called Novavax. If authorized, this vaccine could be one of the most potent weapons against the pandemic. Early data shows that it could be the first shot to slow down asymptomatic spread and potentially provide longer-lasting protection. The other part of this story is the company itself. Novavax is a small biotech company that has tried to develop an improved vaccine with no success so far. But they might have just hit it out of the park with this one. For more on how Novavax turned around its company to make an effective COVID vaccine, we'll speak to Gregory Zuckerman, special writer at The Wall Street Journal. They're a little company uh, outside Washington, D.C. And when you think about this whole period, it's just shocked us in so many ways, you know, how we've, we've handled it. The companies have come to the rescue, and there's really no one more surprising than this company, Novavax. I'm talking about beginning of 2020, they had about six months of cash left, and they were going to go out of business. And their employees were, they had one foot out the door. They were looking for jobs. Um, the stock was at $4 a share. It was under $4 a share. So there really was nobody less likely to come up with a vaccine to, to save us as this company, Novavax. They tried and tried for years. At one point, their only product was this uh, product uh, cream for hot flashes for postmenopausal uh, women. And even that thing didn't sell. So it was kind of a loser company uh, that had tried and tried and failed and failed. And yet, uh, it's a real you know, tri- tribute to the scientists there. Under the radar, they were plugging along and making tweaks and improving this vaccine uh, strategy they have. And lo and behold, they're like early next last year, they're like, you know what? We think we have a shot at coming out with a vaccine and, and they succeeded. It's not approved yet, but uh, in the next few weeks, it likely will be. Yeah. And we got very good early data for them that it does protect against coronavirus. It may be one of the first to be shown that stems asymptomatic spread, which is very important. It can provide longer lasting protection and it doesn't have to be kept at the same cold storage temperatures that some of the other ones do. So there's a lot of potential benefits with this one here. Tell us about their vaccine platform because it's different from the mRNA one that we've been hearing about. How does theirs work? Sure. So this one is a little bit more traditional, uh, not exactly the kind of vaccine we all think of um, historically, which is sort of you get the real virus and you, uh, as they say, kill it or water it down. It's not like that, but it's called a a protein subunit, which is basically they create the spike protein uh, uh, outside the body in a lab. It's actually using, believe it or not, um, cells from insects. Um, Originally, they were these uh, army worms are called. And they use a virus that's actually a virus that uh, affects animals and affects insects. And they create that in the lab. They create the spike protein in the lab and they put it together with this adjuvant, uh, which is just sort of like this um, substance that boosts the uh, immune reaction in the body. They put it together and they uh, put it in the vaccine and they uh, put it in your arm. And basically it 
sends the spike protein into the arm, as opposed to, like you said, the mRNA, which is a code which te- gives you instructions, the body instructions, hey, go create this spike protein. The Novavax vaccine, it's already been created, shoots it in your arm. And there's some people, some, some scientists I've talked to, um, who believe it's, it's maybe the most durable of the ball and it's the one they want to take. So again, this kind of dinky, unlikely company may have, it's not clear yet, may have the best vaccine of them all. Yeah, I mean, that will have to bear out. But as you mentioned, there's a lot of hope for it. And I do love the kind of history of the company, the business history of the company, because, you know, if they do have a successful one, this will be their very first successful thing, basically. You know, they were working on vaccines for HIV, SARS, MERS, Ebola, the flu. Everything either didn't pan out in clinical trials or whatever the epidemic that they were working for, those kind of ebbed down. So maybe their vaccine wasn't needed anymore. Obviously, the need is paramount with COVID-19, so it's still here. But here's Novavax CEO Stanley Irk. He's speaking to Yahoo Finance about not bringing any products to market yet. He said, while the company hasn't done it, it's the people that work for them that have brought other things to market. So he's very confident in this product. I've been accused of never having brought a, uh, a product to market before, little old Novavax. It turns out, so I'll just I'll, I'll make one comment to that. We have a, an incredible staff of now 700 people, and many of those 700 people have brought many products to market. So it's not the company, it's the people that bring it to market. Tell us a little bit more about their ups and downs. They, I mean, they were their shares were only a few cents at one point. Now they're doing great. They were kicked off Wall Street, of uh, the NASDAQ market at one point. So this is really a comeback story for them as well. Yeah, it's also a story about persistence and resilience. And we, um, I kind of focus on the aha moments and the scientists and the, and the breakthrough moments. But a lot of science is just sort of slowly improving over the years, whatever you're working on and learning, just learning about viruses, learning about approaches and tweaking things. And, you know, we don't get enough, we don't give enough credit, I think. I like to write about them, but we don't give enough credit to sort of like the, the long slog, the, the, the process. And it takes years and years. And these guys, you know, they were kind of seen as a loser company and they kept failing. But um, when it comes to at least the biotech world, you can fail with a drug or a vaccine and still have some pretty good ideas. It just some some reason it just didn't go right. And um, maybe the, the virus dried up like Ebola or MERS or something where you know, you're working on it and, and it's not needed by the time you, you put it together or it just doesn't meet the endpoint by a little bit. Um, there are all kinds of reasons why you can fail. And, you know, some of us on the outside see this company and it's trading at $3 and they've never succeeded at anything and we dismiss it. And there are a lot of people a year ago who were just sort of mocking uh, Novavax and who are these people to get money from the government because they got billions from the government and from others, from, from um, nonprofits, from the Gates Foundation. And people literally wrote stories, well, there's got to be something nefarious going on because <laughs> who are these people, Novavax, to actually get money and support? But, you know, sometimes there's serious scientists who just ha- haven't had success, but they are uh, diligent and, and serious and they're making improvements. And it's a story about um, just resilience, I think. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of details in the story. I suggest everybody go out and read through it all. You're right, though. They got about $2 billion in combined funding from all these different sources, you know, to help them get there. And there's still a lot of difficulties coming up. You know, production of the doses of vaccine will be difficult. I think they had a factory that they had to end up getting rid of at one point. So they yeah. had to push back some things, you know, their clinical trials. Things have been pushed back because of these complexities, but they have to get that in order, get approved, and these are the next steps for them. 
Yeah, they're not uh, out of the woods just yet. Um, it hasn't yet been uh, okayed by the regulators, and they still have to produce a lot of it. They've got agreements in place to to manufacture them. Um, so it's still not uh, not clear yet, though, uh, whether they've hit their home run. But they're close, and um, it is a testament. It's a fascinating thing that the biggest pharmaceutical companies that you would have expected to, to have saved us from this pandemic, companies like Merck, who, who, who produced the, the most vaccines. They are the vaccine experts, GSK, all kinds of big companies. They weren't there for us for various reasons. They either tried and failed or they just weren't as focused on, on coronavirus. And yet it was like these unlikely characters that, that stepped, up, stepped up and getting us out of this pandemic, hopefully. Well, hopefully they get approved soon. We need as many vaccines as possible out there. So we'll see how that all pans out. Gregory Zuckerman, special writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, great to be here. Finally for this week, they've been called virtual restaurants or ghost kitchens, but they've taken over America's restaurants. The new world is search optimized and data driven. Often these restaurants have no storefront and no place to dine in. Instead, they can be found on food delivery apps like Uber Eats and Grubhub. Some experts say that these virtual restaurants will be a $1 trillion industry in the next 10 years. And right now, at a time where the restaurants are struggling due to the pandemic, this expansion can be a lifeline for many, as it's a lot cheaper to start one of these ghost kitchens up. For more on the rise of these virtual restaurants, we'll speak to Adam Chandler, contributor to Marker. It's an interesting development for sure. What what dining has um, undergone in the last few years has been a real move away from in-person dining, like going into a store and being waited on um, has been replaced kind of in this Netflix and chill era. And so what we've been seeing is people are ordering out more. People are getting office catering more back when we were going to our offices and uh, people prefer takeout to being out in the world. And so Businesses have invested a lot of money in creating an infrastructure to cater to people who aren't going to go inside and dine anymore. And obviously, during the pandemic, that's accelerated rapidly. It's interesting that the really the only growth that has happened in restaurants has been in food consumed away from restaurants. Obviously, the pandemic accelerated all that stuff. You made mention in the article, it's kind of like if 90 percent of the U.S. population started ordering exclusively online dinner last year. That's not the only piece alone. You know, there's small mom and pops that are doing this. There's big chains like Applebee's that are doing ghost kitchens. Restaurants are expanding, playing with the possibility of different menus. Uh, there's a lot of different avenues for uh, available to restaurants. It's a surprising trend in that it's so unexpected that this uh, very personal and very transparent food system that we've kind of been obsessed with, We've been obsessed with being able to see uh, when we go to, say, Chipotle, our orders kind of made in front of us and just have a kitchen visible. That's been a big trend in food in the last 10 years. And now what we're seeing is that restaurants are moving more, I guess, away from that in uh, launching these brands that don't really have any storefront presence and just kind of exist online only. And it, it's a surprise if you really look into it, if you open up any of your delivery apps and see what restaurants are around you, you're going to see a lot of a lot of options that you've never heard of before that are secretly or not so secretly being run by restaurants that you may otherwise order from on a regular day. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned in the article, a lot of chicken wings. We'll, we'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, you mentioned Chipotle. They opened their very first ghost kitchen in New York and you went uh, out to go check it out. How was that experience? 
Well, you know, it was a funny trip north of New York City for about an, to, uh, an hour to go to the Ghost Kitchen Chipotle. It looks exactly like any other Chipotle, except nobody's dining inside of it. So it's for third-party delivery platform drivers to pick up orders and deliver them. It's for catering orders to kind of enter a separate entrance and pick up a huge order to go. And then it's for people who are just passing by and ordered on their apps. It doesn't accept cash. You can't order in the store and you can't eat in the store. And that's kind of what's surreal about it is that it's the entire Chipotle experience without eating inside of a Chipotle, which you know, it's always been its own kind of special thing. It's very crowded in there. You go through the line and you pick out exactly what you want. So really is a diversion from their normal standard operating orders. Let's talk about costs when things like this happen, because opening a restaurant is expensive. We, we've heard the stories. We know that it's very expensive. But to do something like this, a digital kitchen, a virtual restaurant, it's a fraction of the cost, really. And let's say you already have an existing kitchen if you're, you know, one of these restaurants like an Applebee's or something, and maybe you're branching off into something else. I mean, the cost of opening a digital kitchen at that point is even less. That's exactly why it's such an attractive proposition is that if you already have kitchen space and during off hours or certain days of the week, you're not seeing huge rush of, of people coming in to dine. And this has happened a lot in the last few years. There's a great opportunity in having your kitchen serve as another virtual brand that generates profit by offering things that people want to order and have delivered to their houses. Now, one of the, as I keep mentioning, you know, there's a lot of bigger businesses that are getting on this train. We heard last year about a, a place called Pasquale's Pizza and Wings, only to realize that it ended up being Chuck E. Cheese that was selling out pizza and wings. Uh, that was a pretty funny one. I mentioned Applebee's already. They're getting in on this game. Uh, I saw a story just uh, today. Guy Fieri is opening up a hundred flavor town kitchens. He's calling them, you know, all across the country uh, to get in on this virtual kitchen craze. One of the other things that you did too was looking into, you know, you opened your apps and kind of did some sleuthing just to see how many virtual kitchens they might be out there. And there are a few telltale signs of these virtual kitchens. As I mentioned, there was a lot of chicken wings that you ended up noticing. Right. I know that chicken wings are a really popular ghost kitchen concept because they don't really require a lot of space in a kitchen. Um, you know, they're very popular. They have high profit margins. And it's pretty easy to transport buffalo wings in a, you know, in a to-go container. It's not, it's not a really delicate dish that requires a lot of finesse. So, that's one thing about it that makes it popular. And so I decided to open my seamless app and just look for wings. And when I, when I did that, I saw a lot of listings around me in New York that were a ton of places that I had never seen before out in my neighborhood around me. And by looking at their address, I could kind of sleuth out which restaurants were serving these wings. So one of them was an Applebee's. One of them was a local diner that I go to around the corner from me that has ventured into uh, a side hustle of serving wings. Uh, another was uh, a tavern that probably doesn't have a lot of in-person business right now that's looking for a way to survive during the pandemic. Another one which I ended up ordering from was um, Nathan's Famous, which is the hot dog chain that everyone knows from Coney Island yeah, definitely. that has had wings on their menu for a long time. But decided to spin off into another brand uh, that serves out of the exact same kitchen and delivers chicken wings. You know, we're getting a lot of data from 
Grubhub, Uber Eats, all all the the ordering apps and everything that we you know sign over our data to, obviously. <laughs> but you know they're able to kind of pinpoint what the community wants at that moment. If a neighborhood, a couple cities very close to each other, keep looking for burritos, let's say, well they can then go to a company, they can go to a restaurateur, somebody. Hey, maybe you might want to uh, think about opening a virtual kitchen that just does specialty burritos because everybody is going to want these in your area. Right. It's a foolproof way to kind of game the system using data. And it, it, it's, you know, it seems a little sinister and it feels a little sinister to some. Um, other people might think of it as just a smart business. But um, the fact that your data is kind of being used in this way is effective for better and for worse. It's really compelling to think if you are somebody who is looking for vegan food or have a strict diet that needs something specific and enough people in your area are, are looking for vegan food, that might actually lead to the development of an option in your neighborhood if um, there are enough people around you searching for something in the right apps and someone mines the data properly and decides to approach a kitchen that may be doing something else and say, look, there are a lot of people in your in your zip code who have an interest in vegan food. Why don't you open up a spinoff and see how it goes? And it's proven to be smart. Specifically, Uber, their founder has spent $130 million uh, the past couple of years getting spaces to set up these ghost kitchens. They have a startup, I guess it's called Cloud Kitchens. They can even create their own restaurants, just hire a little bit of staff and, you know, they're just making more money for themselves. It's totally interesting the way that happens. So the last thing I want to ask you about is, well, what is the future of these ghost kitchens? Now we're talking about how this trend is just picking up so much. And I, I love the line in your article, culinary innovation and experimentation ahead will be digital. We're going to use all this data, point to what the community wants, and then, you know, you're off to the races to develop the food for it. Exactly. It, it really does kind of change the experience that we know of. When you think about restaurants, you think about the passing down of traditions, um, what really someone is passionate about cooking, maybe something they grew up with, maybe something that they've developed over time. And it kind of inverts that by saying, we already know what everyone in your general vicinity wants to eat. Why don't you just make that? It really is turning what is kind of a passion project into something that is kind of a strictly business grab. And that's, for some people, that's a really smart way to take the risk out of a really risky business. And that's kind of what ghost kitchens come down to. Running restaurants is difficult. The real estate, the labor costs, there's a lot of risk involved. And so by taking the risk out of this, we may actually be creating a more sustainable restaurant. It's just a question of, you know, whether that's ultimately what we want. Right. And as the pandemic has hit the restaurant industry, so hard. I mean, this removes so many barriers. We've been talking about that experimentation too. You know, there's so much you can do with these ghost kitchens. It's just an avenue for a lot of people. So an interesting story. And I've definitely noticed them myself. And when I order food, these restaurants that pop up out of nowhere, you don't know what they are, but just keep an eye out for a lot more of these. Adam Chandler, right. author of drive Through Dreams, journalist based in New York and contributor to Marker. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. We'll be right back.